You're listening to One Vision, where we shine light on purposeful innovation. We speak to founders, operators, and investors on how they use innovation to impact lives across the world. In this episode, we're very lucky to have Abdallah and Dimi, Head of Ascend Program and Head of Tokenization at Outlier Ventures, aka OV, respectively. So OV is one of those OGs in the web-free space. If you do not know them, shame on you, is by far one of the biggest accelerators focusing on web-free. Through their programs, they have partnered with the likes of Polygon, IPFS, Filecoin, Polkadot, Hedera, Aptos, and Farfetch. Their portfolio companies include Ocean, Fetch AI, Brave, IOTA, Biconomy, Boso Protocol, Chainlink, to name a few. In this episode, we're going to dive deep into the current state of Web3, understanding the drivers and market dynamics, as well as where Web3 is heading. Who is better to do this than Abdallah and Dimi? Welcome to the podcast, Abdallah and Dimi. Thanks a lot. Thanks a lot for having us, Maxon. Thanks, Arun. Great. To, to kick things off, right? Um, maybe I'll pass it on to Abdallah. Appreciate your journey on Ovi, right? It'll be good to understand a little bit about you as well as your experience with Web3. And then we'll do the same with Dimi. Over to you, Abdallah. Sure. Thanks, Maxon. Um, so, yeah, my journey with Ovi started in August of 2021. Um, I was working in management consulting for six years. Um, in 2017, a friend of mine told me about Bitcoin, about Ethereum, and I started looking into it. And he was basically um, taking out allocations into private rounds of projects and doing a syndication in the back end. And he asked me if I would like to join a few of those. I did a bit of reading up. Um, one of those went really well that I participated in. So did uh, several X's um, and then it crashed down to zero in 2018. So that's when I really started looking into the space, reading up about it to better understand when to come in, when to come out. Um, and in 2021, I knew I didn't want to do consulting anymore. I left my job. I was interested in the space and that's when I joined OV. Um, initially, I worked as a program associate and then I uh, managed Outlier Ventures DeFi Basecamp Accelerator program for a year. And since around November of last year, I've been transitioning into the Ascent team, which is Outlier Ventures token launch and later stage advisory program. So that's very briefly my journey with OV. Cool. How about you, Dimi? Yeah. Um, so my journey started in 2017. Um, different background. So I have an aerospace engineering background. And um, during my time as a PhD student, I looked into like new kind of um, business models for aircraft air engines. And basically that's where um, I came into the Web3 space, um, looking into the machine economy, economy of things, you know, um, machines that will act as economic agents and decentralized networks and Web3 got me since then. So uh, I filed a patent on a new avionics system. I tried to find some uh, people in the space I'm located in the south of Germany, so a lot of enterprise-driven blockchain activities. And uh, I've bootstrapped um, a, a meetup group here in the south of Germany, which is one now of one of the largest ones. And yeah, in 2020, or actually 2019, early in the DeFi space, um, I, I've got to know a couple of uh, OG founders um, that are now basically leading one of the biggest uh, protocols. And um, further down the line, 
Then in 2020, I got the chance through my network to basically manage a project around how to turn um, industrial goods, physical assets into digital assets and have them basically traded um, in, in uh, digital um, regulated exchanges, stock exchanges. And um, with my partners, then we basically spent this project off. We started, founded a startup to focus on a scalable platform to provide a solution on tokenizing those kind of physical assets and bring them bridge basically DeFi and traditional finance. Um, during that time, I met basically Outlier Ventures. We went through the Outlier Ventures program, um, the whole stage as a founder through we had two founding rounds. Um, we launched uh, the pilot product. And at some point, I basically decided to step back and uh, focus in what I believe I'm great in, uh, which is basically tokens and tokenization. So joined Outlier Ventures uh, with the scope to build out um, a strong token economist and NFT team. And I would say we have now probably the largest um, token economies team globally, um, a team of nine experts focusing around um, token design, economical designs, engineering, DAOs, and uh, Web3 and NFT strategy. That's brilliant. And uh, thanks again, Demi and Abdullah, for making time today. So. Uh, you guys spoke about your journeys, but uh, I'm really kind of keen to understand what OV is. I mean, I know you guys are active investors, probably the most active investor around in, in, in Web3. You do a lot of research, high quality research content, and you also talk to a lot of startups in the Web3 space uh, and you engage with them in different ways. So how do you define OV? What, what is it that a Web3 startup will come to you for? Yeah, sure. Maybe I can take that one. So... um. OV was founded in 2014, so we've been in this space for quite a while. Um, it was founded by our CEO, Jamie Burke, and our uh, CTO, Aaron Van Amers. Um, and at start, it was just a couple of people interested in crypto and Web3 and everything that it's about. And um, OV experimented with a number of different venture models. So... Uh, we tried out incubation for a bit, uh, being a venture studio and so on. But what happened was in the bear market of 2018, uh, uh, funding for early stage projects completely dried up. Uh, and it's something that OV noticed and there was a clear gap in the market to come in and basically help founders at that stage and provide early stage funding. So um, around that time, that's when we kicked off our first Basecamp Accelerator program. So it was in 2019 um, and it worked really well. We got good feedback from the founders. The projects that went through that first Basecamp did quite well. So that's when we doubled down on the approach. So basically what OV is today is we're the largest Web3 accelerator globally. Um, we're the most active investor in this space in Q1 2023. And we're the third most active early stage investor globally. And um, we basically run two categories of programs. One is Basecamp, which is our earlier stage accelerator program. So focused on teams at the pre-seed MVP stage, 
where we help them accelerate their growth, but really focus on the blockchain and token aspects of their project. And the second category of programs that we run is called Ascent. And Ascent is our program targeted at later stage teams where we uh, provide advisory to them on launching their tokens as well as on other areas of Web3 that they may may need navigation on. So basically navigating certain markets, jurisdictions, expanding their presence in certain areas, and so on. So um, yeah, and today, as Demi mentioned, within OV, we have quite a few in-house teams that help uh, projects that we work with, uh, with everything they need from token economies support through Demi's team. We also have a product and engineering team, legal team, marketing and community team. Um, there's the NFT strategy team within Demi's team. Uh, we have a fundraising and deal structuring team, an ecosystem team that takes care of portfolio companies, and a couple of other teams that also work with projects. Thank you so much, Abdallah. Um, you mentioned that you know within OV there are a lot of different teams. I would like to direct this question to Dimi. Um, you're obviously heading out tokenization. You know, you mentioned that you're very good with token. I guess my first question to you is, what is token? Um, and how do you, I guess, approach to- tokenization in, in general? Yeah, good. Um, good question, actually. Um, I mean, a token per se is actually a digital shell that you can put in attributes and information, right? Um, and the token itself can be fungible, um, like I know it from the ERC-20 standard uh, on Ethereum, or it can be non-fungible where you can um, basically um, include more metadata that makes it non-fungible, actually. Um, and... Uh, when, when we approach tokenization, um, the question is always basically what is uh, the reason to do so and what do you want to tokenize? Um, and there are different approaches to, the, to this, but uh, we, we at Outlier, we have our own uh, playbook actually since 2017 developed, which is structured into um, the token discovery the design and the engineering. Um, And when we look into basically um, what you want to tokenize, it can be from um, a whole company and a business, Um, basically like we're seeing today, shares of um, a a corporate that you can then trade on exchanges, um, which might be then a security token but it can be also a token that it's being utilized within a product, um, for example, as loyalty, as a discount, as a voucher for whatever. So it basically contains another kind of information. Um, But also it can represent a whole digital, artistic, um, uh, um, like an an arts painting or whatever, um, as well as actually could be also a physical asset that you represent basically the information about this physical asset 
And then you can further down the line, even this non-fungible token, fractionalize it again into uh, fungible tokens, where you can then basically um, either own part of it um, or basically then um, use this as more collateral in like further DeFi protocols or whatever. When you when you advise on the tokenization aspects of uh, of a business, how do you go about risk management around that in terms of stress testing it? I mean, we have seen several models, like for instance, Stepin and 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 Axie Infinity, they have come down crashing because they kind of used token as almost their business model. Right, you need to have a business model, and then tokenization is is a means of it's almost a carrier of value in my opinion and that carrier of value will then accrue to different economic actors in the ecosystem but when you try and make uh, tokens itself as your source of revenues and 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 hardcore element of your business model your business model is going to come down crashing so how do you go about stress testing stress testing what are the good practices that you advise your businesses yeah um so there are two processes. One is more the qualitative first approach, which is like the discovery and design. And then if, the, which is based on the expertise of uh, the different and individual token designers uh, within my team who are seeing basically dozens of token designs in the market, but also with an outlier. And the second step is the engineering, which goes more into the quantitative side, as you mentioned, risk modeling, risk management, scenario analysis, and so on. And um, we try basically even in the first phases to um, first qualitatively build in and design robust tokens. So we, need, we, we basically go ahead and first try to understand what is this business about? Uh, what's the product? Um, what elements of the products are actually on chain? Who is the stakeholder group? Um, what should, how can a token be utilized and, and benefit the product and help the product? Um, is it basically at the beginning an incentive for user behavior? Fine. Um, it's pretty strong as we saw with a lot of uh, products out there. But then the question is, how do you maintain, um, this demand then for the token and not just having too much supply of the token that it can be then sold because nobody needs it. It's not part of the product. You cannot utilize it. So we try basically to bake into the product itself already very strong utilities and um, mechanisms that will, um, that will basically accrue the value towards the token. Um, obviously, each product should have its own business model monetization, but the question is, how can the token capture either the whole value or part of the value? So we try basically to design a couple of mechanisms to um, accrue this value. Now, the reality is you don't know afterwards um, how the market is going to react, how the real user behavior is going to be. Um, what are you have dependencies on the markets and so on so we then dive into the next stage which is the engineering where we basically then try to build kind of like a digital twin a representation of the product so what is it how do we model it in a way that um it represents what it sh was intended to do um and then we run a different bunch of simulations so 
We have the first stage, which is more deterministic. So we try to assume adoption of the product, assume um, user behaviors, um, assume how maybe investors are going to behave once they get vested those tokens. Uh, and we see basically afterwards how the dynamics between supply and uh, demand of this token is happening. And obviously, dependent on this dynamic and the balance, this impacts directly the price. Now, how do you ca how can you basically um, simulate what's going to be the outcome of the price? Well, then you need to do a digital representation of market makers of exchanges. So we try to do it this way, but obviously it's never 100% the reality. You basically try to analyze different scenarios. Um, and, and the important thing is here, you, it's not like tokenization, token design engine. It's not, you do it once and then you're fine. It's a process that you do continuously. So once you have your product live, you have user behavior, then you have on-chain data. You need to feed this on-chain data back into your model to validate it and then do further analysis. And we have today, if you look into DeFi, um, a lot of service providers who basically, or in platforms who provide this risk modeling services to the blue chip uh, DeFi project, because there is a lot of billion of dollars um, at risk. So we are already there and there are techniques that they use coming from the traditional finance space and so on. That's, Absolutely. That's I know Max is itching to ask his, uh, his question, but just wanted to leave uh, a thought there because one of the things I, I find really kind of um, uh, baffling is the number of projects out there who, who rely purely on tokens to keep their business going. And, 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 and uh, it's, it's, it's uh, fantastic to see that you're actually modeling the whole uh, supply-demand ecosystem based on the economic actors that add value to the whole business. So that, that's really the kind of... Uh, uh, the thought process or thought leadership we'll need. Okay, Max, go ahead. Sorry. Sorry. No, that's that's super helpful, right? Because you mentioned about how traditional finance um, understanding price and value are two different things. I also like the fact that understanding. So maybe if I break it down, um, value can be defined, or should I say, the price can be defined by three different things. Number one is the fundamental value of the things, which is the business itself. Number two is understanding technical analysis, which is supply and demand market making. Where are they getting those supply and demand? You know, where are you holding those tokens? And lastly, also understanding the psychology of the market, uh, which I find it, you know, is the hardest thing to actually simulate. So I find that quite interesting. And if I were to, you know, roll up to what you were talking about, Dimi, which is, you know, in the DeFi world or finance world, how is tokenization turning finance into DeFi? Maybe I'll direct this question to Abdallah, right? What are some of the interesting trends that you're seeing within DeFi and why are they exciting? Well, given that you run DeFi, but Dimi, feel free to jump in. Yeah, sure. Um, maybe I can mention a few and then uh, hand over to Dimi as well. Um, so I think through tokenization, what uh, where it helps finance is with portability. Like Demi said, like a token is a shell where you can assign value to that shell. So um, and different types of value can be assigned to that shell. And what we're seeing more and more of is um, a lot of different types of assets are being tokenized and tokenization just helps with um, 
the exchange and trading of those assets in a much easier way. Um, so if we look at some of the innovations that have come out of DeFi that TradFi institutions are really looking at, um, two of the main things are uh, automated market makers, so decentralized exchanges, as well as tokenization of real world assets. And I think they're both interconnected. Um, so yeah, I mean, for automated market makers, for example, um, it's an exchange where you can swap any asset for basically any other tokenized asset. And you can do that 24-7 um, without a lot of human uh, interjection into the process. And it's always there. It's always available. Um, and really it can be done by anyone so what that has done is it's democratized market making where in the traditional equities markets for example looking at the us for instance only a few select players can do market making like um the citadels the jane streets of the world whereas in DeFi, anyone can be a market maker basically you can just lp into different pools and um, yeah, you can do market making. Of course, it's also open to market makers, but anyone can do it as well. Um, and with that, if you look at things like tokenization of real world assets, I think it's really, uh, we're still very, very early and there's still a lot to be done in order to have solid use cases, which is also tied to regulations, which we can maybe touch on a bit later. Um, but what you can essentially do is then um, link things like a car, a house, any fungible or non-fungible assets to tokens, fractionalize those, and then trade those on uh, things like a DEX uh, or an automated market maker. Um, and yeah, I mean, I think those are the two of the areas that we hear from traditional finance players that they're really excited about in uh in web3 and in uh defi and there're some of the areas that uh some of the tradfi partners we work with are particularly interested in yeah maybe to to add on this um obviously being in defi for us it's amazing to see basically this real world asset narrative coming in um obviously um, the executed projects and the liquidity and the numbers um, that are bridged to the traditional finance world are negligible from a like traditional finance perspective. It's like I think it's still in the millions, maybe in the early, in the like single digit billions. But in the traditional finance space, we are already in the trillions, right? So, but I think there are very interesting first steps. We see the MakerDAO protocol um, having seventy percent of the revenues coming from real world asset. Um, the, the narrative reward asset is just a representation of traditional finance assets or physical assets that are acting as digital tokens on the blockchain that you can easily trade, but also you can put them as collateral for um, credit. So we we uh, bridges are being built basically to the traditional finance space, which is amazing also because for the liquidity that is today in crypto, it provides um, opportunities to earn a yield. Um, on pools, for example, that invest into um, trade receivables in the traditional finance space. But also we have seen now with um, um, two protocols um, that I've seen that basically go the direction of uh, tokenizing a fund 
that provides the the capital into U.S. treasuries, um, which is interesting. Obviously, we are uh, paving the way uh, this uh, through to, into like permission DeFi. Until now, we have permissionless DeFi, but these are like the first steps towards permission DeFi. And and the interesting thing, what also Dala mentioned on on decentralized exchanges, is the enormous growth through like the drawdown that we saw last year with centralized exchanges like FTX, the trust that uh, towards like centralized custodied um, tokens and solutions. Um, um, and and the interesting thing is uh, decentralized exchanges and this like easy way to participate as a market maker, like anybody can be a market maker, provides a new playing field for traditional finance, like um, developing yield bearing products for the clients or liquid staking derivatives, also a new thing, um, which is basically we see this as a gateway for institutions uh, for yielding products, uh, which is basically um, uh, tier one uh, cryptocurrencies like Ethereum in proof of stake networks um, that uh, can be staked, but you have still a liquid token in the end. Perfect. I have a follow-up question, really, Aaron. Just quick one. Um, I also have just, a number of follow-up questions. Yeah, yeah, let yeah. you go first. Um, just, just to sum up really quickly on the the trends that Abdallah and Dimi was talking about. First one was the AMM. I totally agree. Um, as a TradFi, you know, as a guy who works in TradFi, that definitely a lot of democratization and of automation can be done with automated market maker, especially with traditional assets itself, right? Because Obviously, the, the inefficiency is abstracted away in capital markets. We're not seeing that you know, in front because there are a lot of players at the back, but there are a lot of efficiency improvement, operational improvement. Similarly, for real-world assets has traditionally been you know, bounded by geographical uh, boundaries, but over time, trade open up, items are transferring all across the world, but not everything are transferring across the world physically. Yet, you can still accrue value on those assets. Hence, there is about accessibility and liquidity. But I guess my question is, you know, you have a lot of operational upgrade. Where are we with philosophical upgrade of financial services? We always, you know, we know that, you know, the quality of your money is only as good as the government is backing in. Hence, US dollar is still number one at the moment. So I would love to get a little bit of your thought, right? Tokenization, how is it changing, um, I guess, the at least the discussion around philosophical upgrade of financial services? Oh, that's an interesting question. I don't have the answer. I just thought I really want to get your thoughts because I have both of you here, which are professionals in this game. So we'll love yeah. to get anything will be helpful. Yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm probably as a, with an from with an engineering perspective. Yeah, uh, I'm not the economist here in this room uh, <laughs> who can who can talk how basically um, uh, government backed uh, currencies mm -hmm. are, are being designed, but obviously. Um, uh, two two things. One, there's nothing bad that actually currencies that are existing today and that are backed by how money is being backed today just mm -hmm. come on chain. It's mm -hmm. just as we said, right? You put it in a shell and you have it now on chain tradable, just on another technological infrastructure. It's just another infrastructure. Um, the benefits is it's basically you have a better public accounting system 
So without needing always to have auditors that we trusted with, and we saw yeah. what happened when you trust even uh, Wirecard. Uh, yeah, exactly. Didn't want to mention it, but um, you, you won't need it anymore because it's 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 like an on-chain accounting system. You can see it, you can read it. Um, you saw it with the drawdown last year uh, with FTX. You saw basically social media on Twitter doing so much quick um, analysis of on-chain activities and basically auditing what was happening much faster than anybody else. Um, secondly, I believe having um, new kind of asset classes that can back currencies like um Bitcoin or Ethereum, putting it as a collateral to mint basically a stable asset that is exchangeable with other, other stable assets. I think it's a positive thing. I love it. It's basically it comes down to accountability and accounting because accountability, it's basically, you know, everyone is accountable for the, the country's um, um, economic activities exactly. and accounting is basically changing how we ascribe value, what we can back um our current money i love that sorry abdallah trust, I you trust, on right yes exactly uh, i have a follow-up question um uh, i don't know whom i'm going to direct it to i mean feel free <laughs> to pick, pick that up and uh, give me an answer if that's okay uh, when i think of DeFi, there are three things that really excite me uh one is uh, the kind of the zero knowledge innovation around zero knowledge that's happening um uh, the second one is uh, and, and and i think all all of all three would 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 help drive an institutional uh, adoption but zero knowledge is one the second one is more of the uh, innovation around order books with solana i, I think it's called clob um uh, if if i'm right uh, it, it it took a hit after ftx but it's starting to recover now but order books are I, from from my understanding at least order books are extremely important for highly liquid uh, markets such as fx with low spreads and stuff like that so that is another interesting innovation the third one is um the subnet innovation that 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 i'm hearing with uh, cosmos and the likes of um avalanche uh can you guys share any thoughts around uh, how 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 you're seeing this kind of um, innovation and what what you're seeing from an institutional interest perspective across, if not all of them, but some of them. Yeah, um, I can take this. So uh, zero knowledge is definitely an innovation that is important, especially for as you mentioned institutions, but also for our own identity and everything. Um, uh, you don't always to be, you don't want always to be um, doxxed, but you want to still have the whole world trust what um, the, the, the transactions that are happening, the accounting, etc. So zero knowledge will drive, I think will drive further institutional adoption. Um, also enterprise adoption. You don't want to have your cash flow activities being doxxed on chain or even like further assets in the supply chain or whatever, like fully uh, public. You don't want to also have, because of this, having have uh, just permissioned blockchain and, and non-public blockchains, right? Um, so because it's then just uh, a shared ledger, uh, a distributed um, uh, cloud system, whatever. Um, so zero knowledge is definitely uh, an important innovation that we also as outlier look forward. We run uh, even a dedicated zero knowledge uh, programs. The order books thing is um, an innovation that is part of the uh, DeFi journey, um, right? Like there are a lot of different kind of DEX innovations going on. 
Um, there was a lot of capital inefficiency during the first phases of DeFi. With order books, that allows more like traditional finance players to come in. And um, we we are seeing, which is connecting kind of to the subnets, we're uh, seeing basically um, blockchain layers, layer ones and layer twos, that are specifically now developed and designed to optimize for specific use cases like order books. Um, general DeFi, maybe even gaming. Like we have a very, very much a layer ones and layer twos being built now. Um, before we had the race um, of layer ones and layer twos, like who's going to win. Now I believe there is perception. There is no need anybody to win here. We are all going to win and competition is great. It's going to drive innovation. Um, and with innovations around cross-chain messaging, um, you, it's like having one uh, chain. Uh, so we're going to have innovations around those kind of subnets on Avalanche that you mentioned um, or on, on Cosmos, like dedicated app, app chains, so-called app chains, like applications that build their own chain because they customize and optimize for what they want to build. Um, but we're going to see also layer two ecosystems that want to share, for example, liquidity, like on Arbitrum, the new DeFi ecosystem that's flourished. But on the other side, if you think of further like applications like gaming or so, they maybe don't need so much like other ecosystems. So it's fine. They build their own like subnet uh, and, and customize them themselves. That's brilliant, Dimi. Thank you so much. Sure, Abdullah, I thought, yeah, I saw you, Amir, I thought you wanted to say something. Um, yeah, I mean, sure. Just to add to what Dimi said, I think like, Crypto and Web3, um, for crypto and Web3, ZK is the next natural evolution because a lot of the appeal of uh, crypto and Web3 is being anonymous, protecting your information, not being doxxed. So with the ZK, you can do that. You can still KYC yourself, for example, um, but only provide select information only to those entities that need it so um like within our base camp programs and demi mentioned that we have a dedicated one for zk proofs we're seeing a lot of uh projects come in and use that to build a layer on top of existing chains where you can for example provide all your kyc information and then interact with certain uh protocols that require certain information, like um, whether you're OFAC sanctioned or not, um, if you're over 18 or not, um, which uh, what your nationality is without revealing that information. So what you get back is just a true or false answer. Um, and what we've also seen is some chains even going uh, a step beyond that and integrating ZK into the protocol layer as part of the overall blockchain and how it functions. So Concordium is one, for example, where like they integrate identity into uh, into the protocol layer. So it's part of it's part of how the blockchain functions. Um, and yeah, on central limit order books, so clubs, basically, um, I think with newer chains, we're seeing this evolution because um, for a central limit order book to work, you need to have high latency and high speed. And um, with existing chains like Ethereum, for example, the speed at which a block is confirmed is uh, 
is too slow for you to be able to use things like a central limit order book. So you mentioned Solana. Solana is a much faster chain. Um, so that's why you can put the order book on chain, whereas in like on Ethereum, for example, a lot, most of the DEXs have their order book off chain. And uh, yeah, with, with order books comes increased capital efficiency. So um, with DEXs, for example, there's always slippage and that depends on the size of your trade and the size of the liquidity pool. So how much liquidity is in it? So um, with an order book, you don't need that. Even if you have lower liquidity, it still uh, would have higher capital efficiency. Perfect. Um, awesome. Great. I think that's that's super helpful. I think we, we talk a lot about, you know, the change, the technology, the philosophical debate, operational debate. I now like to zoom out a little bit. Um, Abdullah, given that, you know, you, you step into the Ascent program, um, I like to understand, you know, how is the market different compared now, compared to previous bear cycle? Um, and also, you know, what are some of the things that you've done differently, I guess, in, 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 in you know, in, in the wake of this new well, it's fair to say we're in crypto winter at the moment. <laughs> yeah, for sure. Um, so actually on that point of crypto winter, I think there's two main differences between the market now. So we're definitely in a bear cycle, but this bear cycle is different from other bear cycles that we've seen. And our house view within OV is that we're actually not in a crypto winter, but rather we're just in a crypto bear market. And the reason is like, in 2018, that was a real crypto winter in our view, because um, funding for early stage projects completely dried up. So I mentioned earlier in the discussion that one of the reasons we doubled down on the accelerator model was because in the last bear market, no VCs were investing in early stage projects. Whereas, whereas this time around, um, we think it's a crypto bear market rather than winter because we're still seeing VC interest in projects. Um, of course, it's down significantly compared to like the bull market of last year, but we're still seeing VCs um, deploying capital into serious projects. Um, so, so that's one difference, I would say. Um, another difference in this market compared to the previous bear market is institutional interest. Um, so like in the last bear market, people weren't really sure what crypto and Web3 is, whether it's a gimmick uh, or what it is exactly. Um, so a lot of the market then was driven by hype, whereas this time, even this crypto bear market um, from the people we're connected with and the partners we're connected with, we're seeing quite a lot of institutional interest, both from brands, for example, Web2 brands, cultural brands, but also from TradFi institutions that are really looking closely at the space. Yeah, and, and maybe to add on this, um, which basically well, we have products now on chain. Um, from a like Web3 power user perspective, I can use decentralized exchanges. I can trust them. Um, there is enough liquidity on chain. Actually, the volume um, uh, on, on decentralized exchanges, I think it's already 10 to 20% um, compared to the centralized exchanges. So we have daily active users growing. Um, 
user experience, like the, the application and the UX is amazing. We have account abstraction. So it's very easy to set up a wallet to make transactions. It's cheap. There are so many layer two solutions, applications on layer two solutions and other blockchains. And interestingly, in this cycle, we have actually applications and protocols built with a sound business model, generating revenues, um, tokens that have a utility, stickiness, people holding, locking it up, um, owning portion of uh, the protocols, etc. Absolutely, and uh, and and I, I think the other point to add there is the, the 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 health of the developer ecosystem hasn't dipped, um, uh, and 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 it it keeps growing. The number of uh, GitHub activity when you track it's it's pretty pretty uh, impressive uh, within the Web three uh, innovation economy. Uh, one last question, gentlemen, before I let you both go, if that's okay. Um, we Web three is of course an evolution of Web two. We are standing on the shoulders of giants, if if I may say so. Uh, but it almost feels like we've forgotten the Web two world. So, what do you think is going to be the bridge? Uh, it could be, I don't know, I'm, I'm asking if I'm not asking any particular answer here. It could be a particular experience. It could be a particular sector application. I don't know what the answer is, but what in your view is the bridge between Web 2 and Web 3? So happy to kick things off and then get Demi's views on it. Um, so as mentioned before, I would differentiate a bit the finance world with like the rest of uh Web2 companies that run big brands and so on. Um, I think one of the main things we're seeing with uh, Web2 brands entering Web3 is moving their loyalty programs and customer experiences into Web3 and on-chain. Um, so like, if you think about loyalty points, what, what loyalty points essentially are, are their tokens. So if you think about an airline, for example, um, that issues miles, these miles are units of value that you can use to um, basically redeem for services from the airline or purchase services from the airlines. So um, I think this is the first natural step. And we're seeing a lot of that. So for example, uh, you see Reddit bringing their loyalty program on chain where like uh, their points are now on Polygon. Um, uh, you buy avatars, the avatars are NFTs. Starbucks is doing the same where they're bringing their loyalty programs on chain. And I think the benefit of that is um, number one ownership. So you as a user own your points as opposed to just getting access to your points, your loyalty points from the company. Um, number two is like the value of those points. By, by bringing them on chain, what you have is you directly have a secondary market that establishes value for those units so they can become more easily tradable. Of course, we're still very early, um, but uh, but yeah, I mean, this is the direction we're seeing. And uh, I just mentioned a few Starbucks, Reddit, but there are a bunch of other brands also looking at this from the same angle. Yeah, and and the the benefit maybe to add on this. Imagine now you have miles and more miles being on chain. 
easily being integrated now in other customers' products um, without having the need now basically to have different kind of clouds where it sits in information and you need to trust basically that this information flows right and left and is being transacted. So um, it allows for this um, amazing on-chain quick transfer of information. Um, I think another point to mention here from like Web 2 to Web 3 transition and bridge is actually coming more from the demand side of next generation of people. The young generation, it's, it's more internet native. Um, there is a new cultural change um, in the young generation. And, and that's why we see also for brands that are having, um, or especially CPG brands, consumer packaged goods, and, and uh, direct-to-consumer brands, they basically um, want to capture this value that is unlocked by Web3 technologies and um, and tokenization to create revenue, distribute their product in a more of this internet-native way, as well as then basically use it as a vehicle to enlarge, retain, and transform the customer base. And the more and more you have basically um, those Brands, enterprises bringing basically their products or extending their products um, through Web3 technology to a new customer base, or um, you will have more and more also the need then for new financial services. So there, where it is natural, basically, that also the DeFi ecosystem will flourish um, rather than only seeing it from a perspective, oh, there is TradeFi today and now we're going to bring it on chain. So I think it's going to basically kind of like connect this way. Yeah, maybe just another thing to mention as well in light of recent events and related to what Demi said about the new generations. Um, like Gen Z people today um, have less trust in institutions than older generations. And especially with what's been happening with the US, for example, with the collapse of several banks, um, SVB being the most prominent we saw that like you can have your money in a bank account and overnight you can lose that money because it's not insured and it's an unsecured loan to a bank. Um, and to combat that and like to combat uh, what happened with COVID and to stimulate the economy, what the US has done is printed a huge amount of money and injected it into the system. So I think what we're also seeing is like the newer generations having less trust in these institutions and wanting to move more into Web3 and crypto because it's non-custodial, because um, depending on which token you're buying into, people can just go and print, you know, double that amount and debase the value of your currency. Um, and I'm pretty sure that a lot of the Web2 companies are keeping a close eye on that because like where the future generations go, they're going to go. So I'm sure we're going to be seeing a lot more Web2 companies look into Web3 for those particular use cases. But with that, um, thank you so much, Abdullah. This is so interesting. I think my my general sense is um, you're right. You know, at the start of fintech, People were saying like, you know, you're more likely to store your cash with Apple than with the banks. And guess what happened? This is what happened at the moment. So I think with the Web3 space, you know, you're more likely to store your money with the Web3 network than 
the state itself. Um, so there is a possibility and it's now might just turn into a reality. Um, with that, thank you so much, Dimi Abdallah. Um, I, I, we can't thank you enough. Um, you have given us a lot of insights. We will be sure to speak to you soon. Thank you very much. And to our listeners, thank you for listening. <laughs>